are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, legendary volunteer of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses. Hi, Cindy. <laughs> Hi, Jeremy. You know, I mean legendary in a good way, like uh, not like Bigfoot or something. <laughs> I, I meant that your dedication is the stuff of legend. Well, thank you. I'll I'll take it. I, you know, I learned from the best. <laughs> I'll take that too. <laughs> so this is episode one twenty one of Lighthearted, and this is May thirtieth, twenty twenty one. Well, there's a lot of twenty ones in yeah. there. <laughs> in a few minutes, we're going to talk with William Rawlings, who is the author of a new book on Georgia lighthouses. First, has anything interesting happened on the state and lighthouse history? Yes, something very unusual happened at Whale Rock Lighthouse in Rhode Island on May 30th, 1902. Keeper Joseph Mead saw a large meteorite fall into the water about 300 yards south of the lighthouse. He reported that the meteorite was of large proportions. The explosion when it hit the water could be heard two miles away. Yikes. Also on May 30th, 1908, the American voice actor Mel Blanc was born in San Francisco. That's right. He became famous as the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, and many other cartoon characters. He was known as the man of a thousand voices. He once said, quote, we didn't make pictures for children. We didn't make pictures for adults. We made them for ourselves, unquote. You know, I, I saw Mel Blanc uh, give a lecture at MIT in Cambridge, Mass, uh, back around 1980-ish. And uh, it was, uh, you know, it was surreal. They, I remember they showed uh, some of the cartoons on a big screen and to actually see him there doing the voices also uh, was, was strange. We're so used to hearing those voices in the cartoons. Mm -hmm. Let's move on and introduce today's guest, author William Rawlings, author of Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast. From the mid-18th through the early 20th centuries, the waterways of coastal Georgia, from the St. Mary's River in the south to the Savannah River in the north, were a vital part of the state's economy. Georgia's barrier islands are home to five existing lighthouses, each with its own unique style and history. Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast is the 11th book by William Rawlings. He was born, raised, and lives in Sandersville, Georgia, home to his family for more than two centuries. His first five books were suspense novels set in rural Georgia. Turning to nonfiction, he wrote three subsequent books about Georgia and Southern history. He's been the recipient of a number of writing awards. A constant theme in Rawlings' writing is a well-defined sense of place, especially in relation to the landscape of rural Georgia. He states, quote, One of life's greatest pageants is the continuity of life in small southern towns. Characters wander in and out, plying their intrigues and playing their roles, both major and minor. There's hardly a need for fiction, as the truth is oftentimes more bizarre. What more inspiration could a writer ask for? Unquote. Rawlings' recent works include a suspense novel set in Savannah titled The Girl with Kaleidoscope Eyes and a true crime thriller, Six Inches Deeper. Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast, his fifth nonfiction book, was published by Mercer University Press earlier this year. The book includes information about lighthouse design and construction, the role and legacy of the keepers, and the strategic importance of the structures during the Civil War. To learn more about William Rawlings and his books, see the author's website at williamrawlings.com. 
I had the pleasure of speaking with William Rawlings recently. Let's listen to that now. I'm speaking today with author William Rawlings in Sandersville, Georgia. Thank you so much for joining me today, William. It's my pleasure to be here. And could you explain for those of us who are ignorant of Georgia geography, where is Sandersville exactly? Well, if you ask people about Georgia, most of the time you get the uh, get the response, uh, do you live in Atlanta? And the answer is no, there's other parts of the state. I live in a very small country town about halfway between Atlanta and Savannah. I live on the farm, as it were. Well, I'm sure it's beautiful there. It uh, so I have your, your book on Georgia Lighthouses right near me here. It's a beautiful book. Uh, just uh, starting out here, I'd like to ask you, uh, what led you to write a book on Georgia's lighthouses? And I'll add a part two to that question. Were lighthouses an interest of yours before you did this project? Yes, I've always been interested in lighthouses. And for the last several years, I've been writing pretty much full time. Uh, I had just come off finishing a horribly complicated nonfiction book and I was burned out. And I said, I was talking to the publisher and I said, uh, we were casting about as to what would make a good topic next time. And they suggested, well, how about a book on lighthouses? And I said, oh, that's great. I love lighthouses, number one. And it's a good excuse to spend time at the coast. And I like doing photography. So it, it was sort of a, a, a real respite from the hard work I put in on my, one of my earlier books. And so I picked up on that as my, uh, my next book. I've, I've been interested in lighthouses all my life. As a child, we spent a lot of time at the coast and particularly around St. Simon's Lighthouse, which is one of the major ones there along the coast. I found them fascinating. I've traveled a good bit during the course of my life. I've seen lighthouses all over the world, particularly in South America and in Europe. And every time I see one, I'll say, oh, how nice. And so the opportunity of writing a book is just great. And I was looking at your biography. You've written uh, quite a bit of fiction and nonfiction. Is that is that correct? I think if you talk to anybody who's a writer, they'll, uh, everyone starts out wanting to write fiction. And after you do a few fiction books, if you're reasonably successful, you realize that nonfiction is a lot more fun and a lot more challenging. It also has a longer shelf life. That is to say, your books are uh, in print longer. I've transitioned from uh, fiction to nonfiction about, I guess, about 10 years ago. And I started off writing about Georgia history. And so I've written several books on Georgia history. I just like it. I like nonfiction. The Lighthouse book's a good example. Also, I don't know if this is uh, totally up to date, but I read The Lighthouses of the Georgia Coast is your 11th book. Is that accurate? That's correct. It's my 11th book and my 12th book will be out next year. I'm working on that at the moment. Oh, excellent. Well, maybe we can uh, touch on that a, a little later. But uh, and again, of course, uh, we're kind of limited. Uh, we have limited time here today, but so we can't talk about all your books. I'd love to. But if you were to recommend maybe a couple of your books to someone, could be fiction and or nonfiction. What, what would you recommend to people? My most recent fiction book, which I wrote as a break also, uh, is titled The Girl with Kaleidoscope Eyes. It came out, I believe, in 2009. It's a, it's a very interesting and fast-moving mystery set in Savannah near the Tybee and Coxburgh Lighthouses. And uh, it, it got great reviews. Um, in terms of nonfiction, it depends on what you like. If you're from the South, Perhaps my best book is A Killing on Ringjong Bluff, which is a his history of the crash of the cotton economy in Georgia in the 1920s, a very pivotal moment in, in Southern history. And another one is entitled The Strange Journey of the Confederate Constitution, which is an anthology of shorter pieces on Southern history. Those all sound great. 
And of course, uh, Savannah is a great place to set a mystery. I don't know if there's a Absolutely. better place. <laughs> Absolutely. Might be no better place in the country. So how long did it take you to write the book on Georgia Lighthouses? Well, I started and then COVID came along. Uh, it took me a little bit more than a year. Mm -hmm. I write full time now. Uh, it's my daily job. I get up and do a little bit of writing every day so I, I can write a lot faster than I did when I was writing part time. Uh, it took me a bit more than a year to turn it out. And, and part of that was delayed by COVID because there were some places I needed to go and people that I needed to talk to that sort of were unavailable for a few months. Well, the, the in-depth research you did certainly shows in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, Georgia, of course, has a number of barrier islands along the coast, and uh, which uh, I think makes the, the coastline kind of unique. Maybe you could say a little bit about that and how that topography of Georgia affected the state's lighthouses. The coast of Georgia is really quite different and unique. As you said, we have barrier islands, which means that the mainland is set in anywhere from a mile to two to five or even 10 miles from the coast. If you go to the northeast, as as in Maine or there somewhere like that, you generally have a rocky coast and very few barrier islands. But in the south, these islands have re reflected in many ways the geological changes over the last millennia. We have eight major sets of islands, uh, but if you count individually, they're far, far more than that. The main thing, though, is that the cities of the coast are on the mainland. Uh, for example, Savannah is about 17 miles up the Savannah River. Brunswick is set in, inland. Darien, a major form of major port, was set uh, pretty good ways inland. So in order to approach these, you had to wind your way through a series of narrow channels on or river estuaries, as the case may be, the islands themselves were frequently sources of cotton production or, or the like. Uh, the lighthouses, of course, were located at the, at the sea, and they helped guide mariners into the uh, waterways. Speaking of the, the book again uh, itself, the first half of the book, approximately, give or take a bit, is a really excellent general history of lighthouses uh, in the world, not just in this country, but in the world. And uh, there's also a chapter that gives kind of an overview of uh, lighthouse keepers, the job of lighthouse keepers in general, before you get into the specifics of the, the Georgia lighthouses. So what led you to approach the book that way? Well, I think whenever you write, you've got to think about who your, who your audience is. If, if I wrote personally what I would like to write, it would probably not be uh, not marketable. As they say, you write for the market. The Lighthouses are wonderful, and I think the people that are listening to the podcast, Cass, I don't have to convince them, but there are a lot of people out there who, who are curious about lighthouses, who want to know more, who see them as symbols of this or that, or see them as beautiful structures, and they say, gee, I wish I knew more about that, and you can, you can learn, but I thought that it would be good to put a simple, fairly comprehensive review of what lighthouses are, how they work. And so when you do go and visit a lighthouse, you can say, oh, that's a Fresnel lens. I read about that. I know the history of it. Or, oh, that's a range light. I know what that is. And so the purpose of the, uh, the book was, first of all, to introduce a little bit of history, both American uh, history and history of lighthouses, but also to familiarize readers and potential readers a little bit deeper uh, with the subject and to give them a greater sense of appreciation when, in fact, they did visit a lighthouse. Uh, you also have a section in the book on the mystique of lighthouses, which uh, I find a, a fascinating subject. I think, you know, lighthouses mean many things to many people. 
in the book, you discuss the importance of lighthouses as kind of a, a symbol in our culture. What, for you personally, do lighthouses stand for? Well, let me let me answer that question in two parts. I, when I when I first started writing this book, people would say, "What are you working on now?" And I would say, "I'm working on a book about lighthouses of the Georgia coast." And they would say, "Oh, yeah, I like lighthouses." And then they would launch into this or that and the most strangest things. And I kept saying, this subject is far deeper than I imagined it really would be. And I've got a lot of interesting answers about things that happened at lighthouses or, or romantic moments or tragic moments or whatever. For me personally, I'm a bit analytical. I don't want to say I'm cold hearted, but I see them as scientific instruments. I hate to say that. And I, mm -hmm. I, I love the mystique, as it were, but I also am absolutely fascinated by the subject of, um, of navigation. And as navigational instruments, that's what I enjoy the most about the preciseness of them and the beauty of them and the way they were built and the way they were used as part of a navigational system. Well, I think, uh, you know, both both aspects are, are important, but it's absolutely you know, among many others. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you don't want to lose sight of why they were built in the first place, as you say, for navigation. So you also have a chapter in the book on the role of lighthouses or, or what happened with lighthouses during the Civil War. Uh, that's a subject a lot of lighthouse buffs probably uh, don't know a lot about. Uh, can you sum up the role of the Confederate States Lighthouse Bureau during the Civil War? Uh, absolutely. You have to remember that that in the South, the Civil War is, a, is an integral part of our history. And so it's, it's important to include that in a book about lighthouses towards the coast. When the Confederacy broke away from the United States, many of the institutions that were set up in the New Republic were mimic, mimicked very much the same institutions in the United States. The United States Lighthouse Bureau was set up as the Confederate States Lighthouse Bureau. Now, uh, this was in March 1861. Fort Sumter at the start of the Civil War was in April 1861. And very shortly thereafter, uh, Lincoln, President Lincoln, instituted a naval blockade because the wealth of the South and the ability of the South to pursue war depended on the exports of cotton and other uh, products uh, in naval stores, for example. In that sense, lighthouses became an object uh, with military significance because the blockade, the military blockade could use them to determine where they were. The blockade runners who knew the local waters well didn't want anybody to see them. So the Confederate States Lighthouse Bureau basically presided over the, the darkening of all the lights along the coast of the Confederacy with the exception of about seven lights in Florida that you couldn't reach anyway. And so it was uh, the complete opposite of what the United States Lighthouse Bureau had done. Also, I should comment that the lenses, the Fresnel lenses, which had been placed, most of them in the 1850s by the U.S. Lighthouse Bureau, were removed and hidden and in some cases smashed. Tybee Lighthouse is probably the best known lighthouse in Georgia. I featured it on one of the podcast episodes not, not long ago. It has a long and very rich history. It's actually one of the oldest light stations in the country. Uh, are there a couple of things about its history that you find especially interesting? Uh, I, find, I find its age interesting. The, the tower now, the lighthouse as we see it now, is built on top of a tower that was originally completed in 1773. It replaced a couple of earlier wooden lighthouses or beacons, as it were. And um, it's, it's really in wonderful shape. I, I, that's the thing that I 
find fascinating about it. The other thing was its role again in the uh, Civil War. It sits on Tybee Island. For those listeners who are familiar with Savannah, the Savannah area, the Savannah, is, as I said, is 17 miles up the Savannah River. Tybee is the large island at the end of the river. So in essence, it controls access to the river. And the lighthouse provides a superb view of the channels of the river where they reach Tybee Roads. The Confederates burned the lighthouse, attempted to destroy it, but they didn't. And uh, there's interesting series of events that occurred around that. I find that part most fascinating about it. Plus mm-hmm. the fact that so it's, it's wonderfully preserved. It's a great place to visit, particularly if you, if you don't know anything about lighthouses and never been anywhere, this would be a great place to start. Well, I hate to admit it, but I haven't been there. Uh, and uh, it's, it's oh dear. Yeah, I know it. I know it. It's high up on my bucket list. So It should be. It should be. Yeah, I really, really look forward to visiting there myself. So correct me if I'm wrong when I say this, but St. Simon's would probably be the other most popular or best known lighthouse in Georgia. Uh, One of the interesting stories you wrote in the book uh, about uh, was a tragedy that occurred at at St. Simon's in February 1880. Could you explain what happened then? Well, every lighthouse has stories and anecdotes that go along with it. There's a history, or it's reputed, that the lighthouse there at St. Simon's is haunted. And I haven't met the ghost personally, and I'm not sure many people have, but supposedly it dates to something that occurred in February 1880. The lighthouse keeper was a fellow named uh, Frederick Osborne, and his assistant lighthouse keeper was named John Stevens. Now, the wonderful thing about the St. Simon's lighthouse is that it is absolutely intact. It was rebuilt after the Civil War, uh, completed about 1872. The keeper's cottage is absolutely pristine. You could jerk it out of time and take it back 150 years and it would be absolutely the same. It had an upstairs and a downstairs and apparently the assistant keeper lived up or down and the, um, the keeper lived on the other half. And so there was apparently bad blood between the two men. It, the stories were that one of them's wife, one of them had spoken inappropriate to one of the one of the other's wives. I don't know which happened to which. Or if you listen to the families, there was a dispute over chickens. Now take your choice. <laughs> wow. <laughs> one or the other. But but on a Sunday in February 1880, Stevens shot Osborne with a shotgun. And the interesting story that goes with it was that he was immediately upset about what he did. He stayed and and attended to the injured keeper. Again, Stevens was the assistant keeper. He attended to the injured keeper. He made sure that he was uh, taken care of. And immediately when he was released from police custody, he went back and started tending the lighthouse until such time because he was now responsible for it. And the papers lauded him for that. I don't know the details, but I find by reading old newspapers from the era, it seems that he was acquitted of murder, or at least he was not convicted. And I noticed from looking for the National uh, National Archives record, he was apparently fired the next month. They couldn't keep an uh. assistant keeper who shot the keeper. <laughs> yeah. I think I know the answer to this question from what you just said a, a few minutes ago, but is St. Simon's Lighthouse haunted? Well, if you believe in ghosts, it certainly is. <laughs> Personally, I personally have never observed a ghost, but I will take other people's words. Okay, we can leave it at that. 
uh, and uh, maybe sometime I'll feature St. Simon's on the podcast. Maybe. Oh, you can... should. It's it's a great lighthouse. Oh, definitely. Yeah. So uh, one of the best known stories of Georgia lighthouses, I think a lot of our listeners would be familiar with, is the the famous Waving Girl, which was at the Coxpur Lighthouse. Uh, can you explain the story behind that? And also, why, why do you think that story is so well known? Well, first of all, let me say the Coxburgh Lighthouse is near the Tybee Lighthouse. It's in the estuary of the Savannah River. Savannah River has twin channels coming to the, to the ocean there, and, and it, it marks the southern channel, which at one time was widely used. A lady named Florence Martis, who was born in 1868, was the daughter of the lighthouse, of the lighthouse keeper there, and was also the brother, the sister of a lighthouse keeper. Her brother became a lighthouse keeper. She was a apparently a healthy young girl until the year 1884, when she was allegedly stricken by diphtheria. Again, this is not my story. This is what her story, which she gave to newspaper reporters many years later. If you recall, on August 31st, 1886, there was a great earthquake, Charleston earthquake, which was felt all up and down the East Coast. After getting diphtheria in 1884, apparently Florence Martis was left without the ability to speak and was deaf. But when the earthquake came along, it magically cured her. And all of a sudden, she could hear and speak again. And sometime thereafter, she said it was the next year, 1887, she began waving at every ship that passed on the Savannah River. And so between 1887 and really the 1930s, she supposedly waved at every ship that came by. The stories that have grown up around her are, are a legion. Uh, perhaps the most commonly, one, commonly told one is that she had a lover who promised to come back. and He never showed up again. Perhaps he was lost at sea or whatever. No other stories, but she herself denied that. She said that she simply liked waving at ships. She um, had some large dogs, and when they would hear a ship coming up the river at night, they would wake her up. She'd take a lantern and wave, and she supposedly raved at every ship for nearly half a century there. Fascinating story. Yeah, yeah. Isn't she there's... died in 1943. Um, there was a Liberty ship uh, World War II Liberty ship built in Savannah, named after her, the USS Florence Martis. Oh, wow. Uh, and speaking of memorials to her, isn't there also a statue of her? There is for your listeners who've been to the uh, city of Savannah, the Savannah Riverfront. It's a very lovely statue at one end uh, of the uh, riverfront area there, which is uh, easily accessible right on the river. Yeah, I've seen pictures of the statue there. Sapelo Lighthouse, another one, uh, the chapter in your book. The lighthouse itself was restored in 1998. I think it's just since then that it's really become a tourist attraction. What else is significant about Sapelo Lighthouse? Of Georgia's many barrier islands, there are only three that are easily accessible. That, that is Tybee Island and St. Simons and Jekyll Island. All of them have causeways that reach the islands. The other islands, they may be accessible, but not easily. So Sapelo is, for the most part, a, a nature preserve. I say it's own, part of it's owned by the University of Georgia and under, under um, municipal control. It's very rural. One of the most interesting things is that the Sapelo Lighthouse is a Winslow Lewis lighthouse. It was constructed in 1820 and was decommissioned in 1899 following the very severe hurricane of 1898. It basically uh, ruined the keeper's cottage and so forth. It had fallen into disrepair. 
I have um, photos of it that show the, the tower there, but little else. In 1998, more or less, it was restored uh, in part through funds of the state of Georgia and was wonderful condition for many years. Just now in 20, not 2020 and 2021, there's a second restoration being done. It's isolated and looks more like what one would expect a lighthouse to look like. That is to say, it's not surrounded by commercial development like you see in the lighthouses of, uh, for example, Tybee and St. Simons. And I'm sure uh, a lot of our listeners who are, many of whom are real lighthouse buffs, know who Winslow Lewis was. You mentioned uh, was the builder of the uh, Sapelo Lighthouse. He was built a number of lighthouses, but was also well known for developing the uh, lighting apparatus that was used in lighthouses for several decades in the first uh, part of the, the 1800s. And uh, to some people, kind of a villain in lighthouse history because he had a monopoly on that for as long as he did. Uh, if we could talk a little bit about Little Cumberland, probably the least known of George's lighthouses. Uh, what is uh, significant about that one? Little Cumberland Lighthouse was constructed in 1838 and was decommissioned in 1915. It was the second lighthouse actually on Cumberland Island. Cumberland is the largest Cumberland Island complex, which consists of Little Cumberland Island at the north and Big Cumberland Island at the bottom, are separated by Tyler Creek, but for practical purposes, they appear to be almost one island, one large island. The lower end of the of Cumberland Island complex fronts on the St. Mary's River, which was a major source of commerce. The upper end fronts on St. Andrew's Sound, which was just south of Jekyll Island. The first lighthouse, and not the one, not the Little Cumberland Lighthouse, but the Big Cumberland Lighthouse was built in 1810, more or less. It was dismantled about 1838 or thereabouts and moved to Amelia Island. Material was reused for that lighthouse there, so you can see a recycled lighthouse. The Little Cumberland Light, which I referred to, is really a, a rescue story and one that should make us all proud. Little Cumberland was owned by a number of people up until 1961 when it was purchased by the Little, Cum Little Cumberland Island Homes Association. Their goal was to preserve this very pristine bit of Georgia, the Georgia coast. And with it, they got a lighthouse, which is great. And their goal was to preserve the island. But in the process, they, they got a lighthouse. And so starting in the 1990s, they made a real sincere effort to start fixing and restoring the lighthouse, which by that time had been abandoned for the better part of a century. The lower part was covered up with sand. as Sand drifting dunes had covered it up. So they did a lot of restoration in the 1990s. And then again, between about 2010, 2015, they did a second round of restoration. The wonderful thing is that this lighthouse has been restored and preserved for future. The other th issue is that Little Cumberland Island is privately owned. And they always ask that visitors view the lighthouse from the sea or from St. Andrew's Sound. They do not welcome visitors there. I had the pleasure and the honor of visiting the lighthouse and talking with people there. And it's a really wonderful job they did. And they should be given credit for restoring, for restoring and maintaining this important bit of our shared history. 
Yeah. Well, that's that's really great to hear uh, that the private owners have taken good care of it. We've touched a bit on human history. Of course, there's a lot of it with the with any lighthouse. There's plenty of human mm-hmm. history. I'm wondering if there might be one or two uh, additional human interest type stories that you uh, you tell in the book that you might want to share today. One thing that's interesting is the, the slave ship Wanderer, which was brought into St. Andrew's Sound. The lighthouse keeper of Little Cumberland Light was a retired harbor pilot, and he brought this ship in into St. Andrew's Sound and docked it off the southern end of Jekyll Island. Uh, there were 400 plus human beings that had been brought in from Africa. This was, of course, illegal, had been since the year 1808. This Wanderer was a sailing yacht that had been bought and converted for, uh, as a slave ship. And it's a very tragic part of American history, but part of one that, but one that we should all remember. That's an interesting story. If, if your listeners ever go to the coast of Georgia, you can go to the southern end of Jekyll Island and get a good look at the Little Cumberland Lighthouse. And you can also see where the monuments have been erected to the slave ship Wanderer, which was the penultimate slave ship. The last was Clotilda, I believe, which came into Mobile Harbor in 1960. That's perhaps the most meaningful thing, uh, story that I have. Looking at your sources in the book, I noticed uh, that you mentioned the U.S. Lighthouse Society. And of course, this podcast is the official podcast of the U.S. Lighthouse Society. You listed the society as a resource. Another thing I'm involved in besides this podcast is the research catalog that's on the website, which we're developing all the time. But there's a lot of other resources on the, the website as well about uh, lighthouse history. So I'm, I'm just really glad to hear that the, the website was helpful. Well, it's, it's more than helpful. It's, it's probably the best single resource out there. Uh, if you ever start to write a nonfiction book, you, you're absolutely required to be accurate and correct. And I always tell people, you can't begin to write about a subject till you totally understand it. So the first thing I've done for any nonfiction book, actually for some of my fiction books before I write them, is I sit down and try to reasonably master the subject that I'm writing about to the point that I can teach others about it through my writing. And as a resource, the U.S. Lighthouse Society's website and the various connections and that it, information and other links that it contains is absolutely the best, without, without doubt. Well, I list others in the book, but I, I, I list that far and away. Yeah, that's great to hear. It really is. And there's a, a lot of uh, good people involved with the society as volunteers or board members and so forth. It's... Uh, the organization does a, a lot of great uh, preservation and research and uh, education work. So I'm glad to hear it was helpful to you. Here's a, a question that might be might be hard for you to answer, or maybe not. But what is your favorite Georgia lighthouse? Well, it's it's hard it's hard to answer. I mean, what you know, um, I said I said I always looked for these as scientific instruments, but once you really sort of get into this and sort of review the mystique of lighthouses and everything else that we've sort of alluded to you begin to see them as individual personalities and each, each in its special in its own way. And this one's good for this and that one's good for that. And mm-hmm. I enjoy being at the top of this lighthouse and looking out across this bay. I personally am quite fond of the Saplo lighthouse, believe it or not. It's, it's sparse. It's, uh, there's not a lot there, but I think it's the, the solitude of the island and the pristine environment in which it uh, exists. For educational purposes, far and away, the Tybee Light Station and the um, St. Simon's Lighthouse are 
absolute must-sees if you come to Georgia. Both of them have wonderful educational exhibits. The Tybee Lighthouse is a complete light station, not just a lighthouse tower. It has, it has three keepers' cottages and so forth and really good displays. So everything's a little bit different. I guess my short answer is I can't say I like one better than the other. I'm fond of all of them very much. Well, I completely agree with what you're saying. They all have their own personality. And like here in New England, if, if we're talking about beauty, I have to say Portland Headlight. But if in terms of history, uh, you know, some of the more stark uh, offshore lighthouses have have great appeal. As yeah, well. and, and there, there are other things too. Uh, uh, for example, um, essentially all of the lighthouses here are near other things uh, that were used that were Endicott era forts that were. Yeah erected during the Spanish-American era, war era. There's the Civil War history, which is of interest to others. So it's it's the whole picture, not only the lighthouse, but everything that goes with it. Yeah. So you mentioned that you're working on a book now, and I'm wondering if you have plans to write anything more about lighthouses and or other aspects of maritime history. I enjoy history and I enjoy doing nonfiction. Right now I'm working on a uh, a book about the Columbus Strangler, which was a, a fascinating serial killer that uh, operated in Columbus in the late 1970s. It's probably the most complicated book I've ever written in my life. Uh, and it's a saga that spans more than 40 years. And that's, um, that was uh, done at the request of the publisher. It's a fascinating story, although a tragic story in many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of writing further things about Lighthouse, yes, it's quite possible. I like history, and in particular, I like Georgia history. My family has lived here for many years, and we have many relatives and connections and other reasons to understand and appreciate our local environment and also the greater environment of the South at large. So yes, I'll probably write more about other things, but with the books, I always take it one step at a time this project, and then we'll move on to the next one. Any thought of writing fiction that might involve a lighthouse? <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't mind doing that at all, but I, I'd have to get inspired. You know, yeah. you know fiction, fiction is one of those things that, nonfiction is one of those things you get very serious about and uh, get very compulsive about doing things. And with nonfiction, you sit back and sort of think, and that's what I like so much about it. Yes, it's a possibility. We'll just have to see Okay, it's interesting. Before you said that you find nonfiction harder to to write than fiction. For me, it's the other way around. I've written a number of nonfiction books, and I started trying to write a novel a few years ago. It's been on the back burner for several years now, and I hope to get back to it. But I really admire uh, someone uh, like yourself who can write fiction and uh, dialogue and and uh, you know create characters. And- it's it's a learning curve. I, I, I hate to admit it, but if you read my first fiction book and my most recent fiction book, you'll say, gosh, he's really gotten a lot better. So yeah, you know, it's a learning process. Well, sure, it all is. And that's that's great that you can see that in your own writing. You know, you don't want to stay uh, stagnant. You've got to keep uh, improving moving forward. So that's great. I think I mentioned to you in uh, email correspondence that mm-hmm. not only did I find the book extremely well-written and interesting, but also it's just a really handsome book. I think the publisher did a great job. It's it's really nicely put together. It's a lot of historic photos. Uh, great job using those. But just the paper itself. I've never seen paper quite like that before. It's extremely high-quality paper. Well, well it is. It's, it's what, what we refer to as slip paper. 
uh, Mercer University Press, Press, my publisher, has simply wanted to do a very high quality book. When we started out and we're tossing the idea about, uh, my first thought was this would be a coffee table book. And I said, this, this, this was just discussions. And they said, no, no, if you do a coffee table book, people will look at it and say it's pretty pictures and it will sit and gather dust on coffee tables. And they said, you know, your skill is writing about historical things. So this needs to be a history book about lighthouses. And I said, okay, let's do that. And that's how it evolved. The design firm that, that works with Mercer is quite good. I've, I've had several books that they've done, and I've been extremely happy with them. Very innovative, very sharp people. And they're responsible as much as anything for the layout of the book. Well, it's a beautiful book. And I, I just want to say, you know, really interesting, engaging, uh, in-depth books on lighthouse history don't come around that often. And this is certainly one of them. So, Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for writing it. Let me ask you uh, one final question for bonus points, okay? What was your favorite part about working on this book? Getting to go to the coast and meet people and talking to people about lighthouses and talking to people about coastal history and getting to know new people and exploring things and new experiences and learning things that I never knew before, without a doubt. Of the memories I have of writing this book, those certainly come to the fore. Well, that's great. I'm glad it was a good experience for you. It's certainly a a good experience for me and anybody who uh, picks up this book, which I'm sure is available through online booksellers and probably uh, bookstores in in Georgia, I imagine. It's in. uh, It it is available from the usual outlets, as I say. William Rawlings, you know, the time has uh, flown by. I just uh, looked at my watch and I was quite surprised to see that we've talked for 40 minutes or so. It's all so fascinating. So again, uh, thank you for for writing this book and thank you for spending this time with me today. I hope we can uh, talk again sometime. Well, it's been been a real pleasure. And I want want to thank you for asking me to be here. Again, you can learn more about William Rawlings and his books at williamrawlings.com. It was a pleasure speaking with William. I should mention that if things go according to plan, I hope to visit the Savannah area next fall. I'm hoping to visit Tybee Lighthouse and at least one or two of the other lighthouses while I'm down there. Uh, Interviewing Sarah Jones, the executive director for Tybee Lighthouse, and then speaking with William Rawlings really made me want to go down there. On another subject, this year is the 250th anniversary of Portsmouth Harbor Light Station in Newcastle, New Hampshire. It sure is. As any regular listeners know, you and I and our other frequent co-host, Michelle Jewell Shaw, are all very involved with Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse. Yes, we are. Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses will be holding a virtual celebration of the 250th anniversary on Sunday, June 6th at 4 p.m. There will be some special guests, a music video, and a look at some of the history of the light station. I'm looking forward to it. We're also just putting the finishing touches on a book on the history of the lighthouse, which will be available soon on our website. And Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses also recently co-published a new edition of the classic book, The Lighthouse Keeper's Wife by Connie Small. You can get information on all that and also the tours we're doing this season by advance reservation on our website at PortsmouthHarborLighthouse.org. A big thank you to all our listeners who work to preserve lighthouses and other historic structures. The great science fiction author Robert Heinlein once said, quote, a generation which ignores history has no past and no future, unquote. Be sure to check out USLHS.org to learn about everything that the U.S. Lighthouse Society offers. If you listen using Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. And as always, thanks for listening and 
keep a good light. Let it shine, let it shine